Welcome to Northwest, everybody. Thanks for being here this morning. We honestly hope you're having a great summer. Uh, my name's Jerry. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And um, man, we've had, a, we've had a great time here this summer at Northwest diving in to a series that's called Don't Waste Your Summer. And uh, if you've been able to be, be around for the last couple weeks, you'll know that we have been studying the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Scripture, in Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament. And uh, the idea is that if you have made that decision to go from death to life, if you follow Jesus and been given that new life as a Christian, if you've made that decision in your heart, in your mind, Scripture says we have got an unbelievable power within us. Uh, we spent six months or more talking about the book of Acts, the very first church, and how God gave them the Holy Spirit, God living within us, that empowers us, sets us free, and propels us to do good works and to carry on that great message of the kingdom. So this summer, in Galatians chapter 5, again, a book in the New Testament that was written to believers, uh, there's listed out these various fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if you are a Christian, these things should be evident in your life. And it's an incredible list, and it's good for all of us that belong to Jesus to look over them and to really ask ourselves the question, am I showing this fruit in my life? And um, I mentioned to you guys last week when I spoke that anytime you're diving into a certain concept, last week it was patience, right? You know that there's going to be some tests to really see whether or not you're patient. And so for any of us, even for us as a church, if we're saying, hey, Lord, we want these fruit to be evident in our life, we better be ready for some challenges um, in order that we can produce them. So this morning, we actually have two of them what we, that we've kind of connected together because they are interconnected. And um, if you're following along or taking notes, uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about the idea of kindness and the idea of goodness. We're going to morph two of these things together um, because they are very much related. And from some of the study that I've done in uh, commentaries and the original languages and really trying to get at the heart of what was the Apostle Paul trying to convey by this idea of kindness and goodness, uh, most commentators agree that a, a proper breakdown would be something essentially like this. One of them is more internal. Okay, and that's kind of the idea of goodness. Goodness is a character trait. Uh, goodness is a morality. So that's something more internal that begins in the heart. And the idea of kindness is more of the external expression of that. Okay, that's kind of the action. So we've got kind of the thought or the attitude or the character piece that begins in our heart and in our mind in goodness. And then stepping out on that and actually doing something is the idea of kindness. Okay, how many people have ever had a good thought like, oh, you know what, I really should do this for this person, and that's where it stopped, was right at the thought. Anybody have some of those? <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe I shouldn't, you know? It's like, yeah, thinking something in your heart, the Lord telling you something, but then actually stepping out and doing it is the other piece of it. And they're both vitally important. And we need to recognize, as with all of these fruit of the Spirit, that this is not just um, morality or goodness for goodness sake. This is not just us being nice people. 
This is spirit-ordained. This is God-orchestrated, supernatural ability to, um, to show these, th- this fruit in the world. So the book of James, chapter 1, verse 17, tells us about this, right? It says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So it's not just my great idea to do something or my own intuition or my own ability to be kind to somebody. Truly, if we're going to be acting out on this fruit of the Spirit, it all comes from God. That initial goodness, that thought of goodness that that the Lord plants in you comes from Him. The ability to step out and to actually do something, to give, to be generous, to serve, uh, that also comes from God. And that's really important for us to understand. All of the glory goes to him, and, um, and, and we need to recognize that, uh, that we need to posture ourselves in such a way, even all summer long, that says, okay, Lord, here's my heart, here's my life, here's my actions, here's my time, and I need you to supernaturally give me, infuse in me the ability to do these things or to show the world these things. Because on my own, I just can't do it. You know, Scripture talks about, again, apart from God, we can do nothing. Before we met Jesus, before we entered into a relationship with him, there was no goodness in us. And any kindness, any good things that we did ultimately fall short. So our prayer, honestly, guys, this morning for this community is that we would simply be vessels that say, okay, Lord, my heart is open. You have made me good. You have redeemed me. You have renovated me. So you have made me good and you have put these good thoughts in my mind and it's only by your strength that that happens and it's only by your um, propelling my ability forward that I can show kindness to anybody else. So these are the two that we're going to dive into here this morning and I'm super excited about this narrative that I feel like the Lord has led me to. Um, But man, many of us here have experienced acts of kindness. We've experienced things that are unforgettable, if I were to sit down with every single one of you and were to ask you the question, what is the nicest, most unexpected thing somebody's ever done for you? I'm sure we can fill this room with stories. Well, this week I threw out on uh, Facebook to our Northwest community, hey, give me some feedback. What What is a time that somebody has shown you undeserved kindness? And my inbox was flooded. I only have time to give you a couple of them, but I wanted to share these with you. Uh, The first one responded this. One of the kindest things that we remember was when we were back in Australia with a toddler living there. We had some friends that knew my mother in America had never seen our baby. So they flew us all to Texas from Australia for a surprise visit for my mom's 70th birthday. My mom's Australian. It was incredibly emotional as we could not afford to fly our whole entire family and mom and dad were not physically well enough to fly to Australia. It was a very kind, generous, and humbling experience for us all. 
Today, we think of this family often, and we remember their incredible kindness and generosity. I'm confident they continue to spread their love, kindness, generosity, and faith in Jesus to all. And then listen to this last line. It's so poetic and so beautiful. She says this. She says, it was one emotional and heart-stopping moment of true love. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? It's like, whoa, I had to read that again. That is one heart-stopping moment of true love. We're not talking about an engagement or a husband and wife or like, no, this is spiritual family saying, I've been given resources, I've got something I want to give to you, and it was an emotional, heart-stopping act of true love. Do you have one of those? Have you ever been the author of one of those for somebody else? How about this one? Hey, Jerry, saw your post. Uh, May not sound like much, but at the time, it meant the whole world to me. When Jimmy, our son, was born, we were majorly struggling. He was colic. We were exhausted. I was feeling a little depressed, and our, our family was super far away. And as you can imagine, it was a lonely and difficult time. But one day, out of the clear blue, Casey Kiefer, one of our awesome women here, great involved family, She texted me, we barely knew each other at the time. Truly, we were only acquaintances. She asked if she could come bring me coffee and come hold my baby for a while so I could have a break. I could not believe someone who didn't even know me was willing to drop whatever they had going on that day just to come over and give me a break. Meanwhile, she has three young kids of her own and a job to worry about. It was amazing. Again, it probably doesn't sound like much, listen to this, but it brings me to tears just thinking about it. Goodness, ideas given from God, the ability to act it out in kindness is what we're talking about here this morning. Think about this statement. Kindness and goodness help us get out of the rut of systematic selfishness and reflect the heart of God to the world in a way that will not be forgotten. That's our key thought here this morning. That's what we want to hammer on. And, uh, and the Lord brought me to a pretty incredible, obscure narrative that was really unfamiliar to me in the Old Testament. Um, I was doing some research, came across some writings by a guy named Chuck Swindoll. Many of you who have been around the church scene for a while. He's a great Bible teacher, a great communicator. And he's got this book called uh, Grace Awakening, where he just talks about all these different illustration and hints of um, grace all throughout scripture. And as I was looking for what would be a great example of this idea of kindness, I came across this one. And it has to do with a guy in the Old Testament named King David. We've all heard of him. But it's an obscure account with a guy named Mephibosheth. Anybody know that story? You know that story? Raise your hand up really, really high. Okay, there's like seven or eight. In this whole entire congregation, this whole community. And I think half the reason, honestly, is Sunday school teachers are like, it's so much easier to talk about David and an easy name to pronounce like Jonathan or Saul or Jesse. It's like, what is this about Mephibosheth? I'm going to get way too tongue-tied. Let's just skip over that one, maybe. But anyway, that's the name. Everybody say it here. Mephibosheth. You are the best. 
you are amazing. Can you just come up here? That's it. That's the one. And she's like, yeah, I'll come. That would be great. You, no, probably not. But anyway, just think of Ma, your Ma. Think of Fib telling a lie. Think of Bo, Bo Jackson, Bo Diddley. Think of Chef in the kitchen. There it is. Mafibo Chef is pretty accurate. It's a tough name, but guys, it is an unbelievable narrative. And turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and you can just stay there in your device or in your copy of Scripture. Um, I would encourage you to get your pen out or your highlighter. Uh, there's several things in this account that just absolutely jump out from the page that are incredible illustrations of what we're going after here this morning as a church body. So while you're turning there, 2 Samuel chapter 9, just want to bring us up to speed on a little bit of background that's important to understand where we're dropping into this story. David is now king of Israel. Okay, so he has been anointed king and he is now in power. You'll remember if you've been to Sunday school or if you've been around church for a while that the previous king, his name was Saul. And he was an evil king who hated David. You remember David played music in his court and was a servant. And Saul had a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David were great friends together. They trusted each other. Um, they, were, they were best friends. And yet think about the angst for Jonathan as his father, who was reigning and king, hated David and tried to kill him several times. Because he was threatened and he knew that this was the anointed one that was going to uh, be raised to power. So Jonathan uh, protected David. He rescued him, essentially. Helped him get away from his father. A giant war ensued and many, many, many people died. Jonathan died. Saul, the former king, he died. Um, many of their family members died. And now David was in power. And that's where we find ourselves in the beginning of this story. Let's start reading in, in verse 1, chapter 9. And King David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You can underline that word. That's what we're talking about. You need to understand here this morning that at that time, thousands of years ago, it was absolutely customary in that culture that everything rose and fall by the power of the sword. Okay, so when a new king finally came into power, it was customary that all the immediate family, especially the heirs, especially the son, especially the grandson, anybody else that would have been an heir according to that previous regime would be eliminated, would be killed. That was ordinary. That was expected. Everything lived and died by the sword. And so now here's David. He's the one that is, that is the king. It is absolutely customary and expected. He would search out every possible relative from the previous regime and make sure that they were not going to be a threat. And so again, he's saying, hey, is there anybody in the house of Saul, that was the former king, house of Jonathan, that was Saul's son, anybody at all that I can show, what? Not revenge, not anger, not suspicion that they're going to try and overtake me, show kindness to. David had made a promise to Jonathan and to God that I will not harm your family. You've protected me, you've rescued me, and, and, and I want to honor that. 
And so now he's asking, is there anyone left? Let's keep on reading. It says here, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Also probably not going to win any awards and best names of, uh, you know, 1000 BC or whatever it was. But they called him to David. Again, formerly a servant of Saul, part of the old regime. He's going to be an important character. And the king, that is David, said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show, notice, the kindness of God to him? Going back to our original point, right? When we talked about the introduction, it's like, this is not just, oh, I'm going to be a nice person. This is supernatural. David's saying, I want to show this undeserved kindness to someone. And it's not just my kindness because I'm a nice guy. This is the kindness of God. Really huge for us. Notice, Ziba said to the king, well, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he is crippled in his feet. Now listen, in the Hebrew context, the way this is said kind of carries along the idea that Ziba's like, you know what, it's not really a threat. There's no worth, there's no value. There is someone left, there is a son, but he's crippled. He's handicapped. He can't even walk straight. He can't run, he's not a warrior, he's a nobody, just forget about him. And what's so amazing, guys, as we think about scripture and as we dive into these Old Testament narratives especially, you could see these kind of signalers that pop up from the text that are foreshadowing and reminding you of other stories, right? Think about David, you remember when he was anointed king? Remember that story where Samuel came and the Lord had told him one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so he said, bring out all your sons. And so they paraded out all the sons. Again, in that culture, the oldest one, most important, most prominent. He's standing there. He's strong. He's a leader. He's mature. And the Lord said, no, that's not the one. Next one, what about him? Nope, that's not the one. Next one, next one. All the way down the line until Samuel said to Jesse, are these, is there, is there not any other son that you have? Remember, kind of like that same feel. And Jesse's like, well, there is but the youngest. And he's kind of out in the field and he's just skinny and young and just watching sheep and really not worth anything. You see the parallels here, guys? Now David's the one who's in control. And he's saying, is there not anyone? Oh, well, I guess. He's crippled. That's big. So what does David say? Oh, well, how crippled is he? Or no. Immediately he responds. And he said, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mikar, son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. And guys, the name of that city, Lo-Debar, Lo essentially means no. And Debar means thing. In other words, no thing. It's a city of nothing. That's the name of it. It's barren. It's worthless. That's where he's from. He's hiding, wasting away his days. He's crippled. He's not worth anything. He's not a threat. You don't want to go see him. He doesn't add any value to you, David. So it says immediately David went and uh, sought him out, found finally 
Mephibosheth, skip down um, to verse 7. And when David found him, he said, do not fear. Remember, in his mind, what does this king want to do with me? He wants to kill me. He thinks I'm a threat. And David says, do not fear. See, guys, even in ancient times, kings and those in authority would say, oh, no, you know what? I just want to know. I just want to be kind to you and just to find somebody out so that they could kill him. You remember in the life of Jesus when he was born? Remember King Herod said, oh, you know what? Where is the Christ child? I would love to know because I would love to also worship this king of the Jews. Yeah, right. He was going to kill him. The same kind of feel was going on here. And so Mephibosheth said, I am your servant. You know, David said, hey, do not fear. Listen to this. For I will show you, verse 7, kindness, that same word, for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Underline that phrase. Guys, that is incredibly significant for us this morning. We understand way back in the day, especially among kings, those who they invited to their table were only immediate family or perhaps on occasion a high-ranking uh, warrior, somebody that was on their inner cabinet, somebody that's done great things for them, somebody that they trust implicitly. To eat at somebody's table was a position of honor that not just anybody could do. And you can imagine, as this guy who's crippled, who's coming from nothingness, coming from the shadows, is given that invitation, what is his response? Verse 8, and he paid him homage. He bowed down to him and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He understood the implications of this, saying, David, I don't deserve to be at your table. I am nothing, and you are the king. But David, in his kindness, wouldn't have anything of it. He called Ziba, you remember the head servant, and he said, you're going to take care of Mephibosheth. Your sons are going to go out, and they're going to till the land. They're going to provide for him, and, and he is going to eat at my table. Look at the end of chapter, or verse 10. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And again, in verse 11, tail end, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table, that next phrase, like one of the king's sons. He was given this position of sonship, though his grandfather had tried to kill David. It's incredible. At the end of chapter 9, notice that last verse, it says, now once again, he was lame in both feet. And it's so amazing, guys, in this entire chapter, the way he's introduced, and the end of the chapter is bookends focused on his identity of being a cripple. Now, we need to understand this, mor this morning, church, thousands of years ago, things are not like they are today. Thank the Lord, we've had progress, we've had compassion, we've had technology, and nowadays when we think about people that are somehow deformed or were born with a deformity or had some sort of accident in their, and their bodies don't work like everybody else's, there's margin that's created for them. As well there should be. There's people that want to help. There's whole entire camps set up for them like we went to a couple weeks ago in Camp Barnabas. 
And for many here that perhaps work with special needs in schools or volunteer with that sort of thing, you know that in working with somebody with special needs, there is something so special in your heart that can only be accessed when you're around people like that. And nowadays, we've got handicapped parking spots. Um, you know, we've got technology of wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs and everything else to try and do everything we can to let some of these um, people ha- try and live a normal life. Thousands of years ago, that was not the case. Thousands of years ago, the prevailing thought was that if somebody was somehow lame or crippled or anything else, it was because they were cursed by God. And they were outcasts of the society. You see that right even in the life of Jesus and the apostles when they would heal people. You remember everybody was like, I got a question for you. Did this man sin? Is that why he can't walk? Or did his parents sin? That was the prevailing thought. And here David says, I don't care that his family, uh, you know, that he's in line for the throne. I don't care that his grandfather tried to kill me. I don't care that, you know, I would be okay if I eliminated him because he's potentially a threat. I don't care that he's got nothing to offer, that he's not strong, that he's not a warrior, that he's not prominent. I don't care. There's an empty seat at my table, and I am going to usher and invite him into it. That is the kindness of God that David displayed freely. It's incredible. It's a beautiful illustration for us. And it's so powerful to see what his response is when shown that kindness. Second half of the story uh, happens here in chapter 19. I've got it um, there on the screen. But just to fill you in about what happened in the meantime, there was turmoil. David's son, Absalom, turned against him, tried to overtake the throne. There was a war. David and his cabinet members and his family fled Jerusalem where the palace was. And, and there was a great war and, um, and David still remained king. But there was something really interesting that happened in this account because of his kindness. David came back to Jerusalem, and guess who was still there? Who hadn't fled along with David and all of his supporters? A guy named Mephibosheth, verse 24, chapter 19. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. He said, I am so dedicated, you've done so much for me, I owe you my life, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not taking a shower, I'm not changing, I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait expectantly until you return. Now it's great to be dedicated to each other, but I think you'd agree with me, it's okay to take a shower and still be clean, right? Not him, I didn't do anything, I'm waiting for you. And it's incredible. Keep on reading verse 25. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, that is David, David said to him, why did you not go with me? All my supporters, we all left. We were flushed out of the city. Why did you not go with me? Verse 26, and he answered, my lord, my king, my servant, that is Ziba, remember that character earlier on, he deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. Same idea of crippling. He's saying, I wanted to go with you, but I was left behind. 
Ziba left me in the dust. I can't walk. I can't run like everybody else. So I was forced into staying here. And Ziba betrayed him out of jealousy for his position at the king's table, made up lies about him, and that he really wanted to stay in Jerusalem because he wanted to be the next king. But listen to this, guys. Keep on reading in verse um, 27. For, for he, that is Ziba, has slandered your servant, my lord the king. But my lord the king is like an angel of God. This is how committed I am to you, he's saying. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all of my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Do you see the reoccurring theme here? He's saying, I was unworthy, and yet you invited me. You gave me this spot that I didn't deserve. And David is confused about these two differing stories. He says, okay, well, basically, all that land, all those riches that I promised you, I'm going to give you half, and I'm going to give Ziba half, because I don't really know who to believe. But notice um, what happens in verse 30 after he says that Mephibosheth, said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my lord, the king, has come home safely. In other words, he's saying, I don't care about riches. All I care about is this relationship. I'm not in it, David, for what you can give me or what you've promised me. I don't care about any of those possessions at all. I just want to be in your presence. That's what kindness does to its recipients. And guys, as I read through this story, I couldn't help but seeing these gospel implications jump off the page as a result of this obscure story. And I've kind of crafted four quick questions that I just want you to think about as we get ready to, um, to open up our hearts and see what the Lord would have us do with this illustration of kindness. And the first question that I want to ask you is this. Do you hear the echo of the gospel in this story? Do you notice it in there? I think perhaps for some of you, you're like, well, you know what? Okay, preacher. Yep, got it. Um, we're supposed to see ourselves in the story. We're supposed to take an illustration from something that, that God did. Okay, see it. We need to be more like David and show people kindness and do something unforgettable for them, even though they don't deserve it. Yes. In our story, we need to see ourselves as David. We need to invite people in. We need to give people something undeserved. We need to look beyond what they can offer us and show them genuine love and kindness. That is absolutely true. But you know where the gospel echoes that is also in here? Is when we see this story and we understand what God has done for us, as we look at it, we also need to say, you know what? In that story, I'm not David. I'm actually Mephibosheth. I'm the one who's got nothing to offer to God. I'm the one who he called me out of obscurity, out of the shadows. I'm the one who is spiritually lame. I'm the one that doesn't deserve to be at that table. And yet God, in his goodness and in his kindness, invited me up there. I'm the one, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, wanted to be the king of my own heart. I'm the one who was an enemy of God. 
And yet, because of the kindness of God through Jesus, he invited me to that table. He gave me a position that I don't deserve. Look at what scripture says in the book of Romans um, chapter 2. It says this, do you presume on the riches of his, that is God's kindness and his patience, not knowing that it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance? Guys, if we truly believe in the gospel, we see that in the same way that David treated him like one of his own sons, like royalty, the Lord has invited us into a relationship with him that's the same. It's an incredible, incredible concept. Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives this illustration. He said there was, there was a prominent man. He wanted to have a giant feast. And he invited all the prominent ones, all the rich ones, all of his rich friends, all the ones that they would think deserved to be there. And none of them came. And so then the rich man said, go out to the highways and to the byways and go to the alleyways and invite the lame and the beggar and anyone else. I will make them royalty and they will enter into my joy. As we think about the goodness of God and the kindness of God, that is the illustration of what Jesus did for us. Adopted us as his sons and his daughters with the full right bringing us out from the shadows. Amen? Second point I want to make here quickly, second question. Who is the first person that you can think of to show kindness to? All right, what are our action steps? Who's the first person that comes to your mind? It's probably an easy target. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's, you know, that, that same teller that you get at the bank or something else. And we need to open our hearts This is like, all right, Lord, who are the easy ones that are right here and it's not going to take a whole lot, it's not going to cost a whole lot of money. Maybe it's a coworker. maybe it's bringing them something, it's whatever. Who are the easy ones that we can show this kindness and this goodness to? Crystallize that thought, crystallize those names, that situation. Number three, who is the last person that you can think of to show kindness to if we're really talking about this idea of supernatural god's goodness in us god propelling us with kindness we really need to understand that this is something that wouldn't be possible without the spirit of the lord is there an enemy that you have a family member that you have Somebody else that there's just been such a barrier between you and it would be nearly impossible for you to think of ever being kind or good to that person because all the thoughts that you have are continually negative. Look at what scripture says in, um, in the book of Peter here. It says this, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Guys, we're called to be kind even to the very last person on our list of affections. Fourth question that I want to ask you finally is so who will you invite to your table? And guys, I mean this metaphorically. You know, you got David inviting somebody to a position of honor. They don't deserve. Yep, do that for somebody. Be generous. Absolutely. But I also mean this literally. 
You know that we've had the challenge out there this summer that we've encouraged you with and reminded you of that says, you know what? If you're a part of our community, we want to be the kind of people that are open for relationship and can shine a light into our neighborhood amongst our neighbors just by simply getting to know who they are, getting to know their story, serving them by having them over for a meal or a block party or something like that. And Jesus was the king of this, right? He was constantly eating and fellowshipping with people that were not like him. My question for you this morning is who are you going to invite to your table? The Lord to bring those families, to bring that person to your mind. And we're going to be praying for the strength to step out and to act on that. As we've seen so many and heard so many stories of people that have done this and, and, and what the Lord's doing even through it. So I guess as we're closing, I just want us to um, recall the response when we've been shown that kindness. And the response was, you know what? Possessions are nothing. God, a relationship with you is worth so much more than any riches. It just reminds us of even what Paul said in the book of Philippians chapter 3, right? All that I want, once thought was gain. Uh, all these accolades, all these accomplishments, everything that I once thought was gain, I now count it as loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of simply knowing Jesus. Are we going to have that same kind of attitude? Hey, somebody else can take it all. Riches, wealth, fame, doesn't matter. I just value a seat at your table, God. I just value what you've invited me into and what you've done in my life. And man, if that's your response this morning, uh, I'm I'm really praying that this song that we close with is going to solidify that. Let's just go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes and I'm just going to pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for this community. Those in here that are believers, that love you, that have crossed over that line. Those perhaps in here that are just checking things out and don't know you yet. Lord, I pray for each one, God. There's so many thoughts going through my mind. Lord, I pray that for some, they would recognize and realize your invitation. That Lord, like you say in scripture and in Romans, even while we were yet sinners, even at our very worst, you demonstrated your love to us and you invite us to your banquet, to your celebration, to your table. Father, I think of others that perhaps have been just discouraged, thinking they don't have much to offer, thinking that they're not able and that you couldn't possibly want them to be close to you. Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the riches that you've already given to us. And Lord, I pray most of all, God, this morning, right now at this moment, God, that you would open up our hearts. Lord, that you would just allow us to be open to your goodness and your kindness displayed in us. We recognize, God, that you are the one providing that power. And God, we just want to be servants and vessels. So let us sing out now with a whole heart as we offer our hearts to you. We love you, God. In your son's name we pray.